Welcome to the C.S. Lewis Festival Scholar Series. I'm your host, David Krause. Today's podcast continues to delve into the surprising imagination of C.S. Lewis. This imagination, I might add, was explored in depth in the film my company produced on Lewis. The film, The Magic Never Ends, The Life and Faith of C.S. Lewis, aired for over a decade on over 300 PBS stations nationwide. Today's podcast features Dr. Phil Jamison, teacher, lecturer, and minister. As a professor, he taught a seminary class and became concerned because he realized many of his students had never read fiction. What's informing their own thinking, he thought. Phil was concerned they would lose their wonder of scripture, so he decided to teach a class on Lewis that addressed this issue, which is the basis of his talk, Weaving the Spell, C.S. Lewis on Breaking the Enchantment of Worldliness. And now, Dr. Jameson. There's sort of a, an upside and a downside of uh, being the presenter after lunch. Uh, the downside is yours because you're going to try to be concentrating while all the blood is rushing to your stomach to do that important work of digestion. The upside is for me because this means I did not have to directly follow Mark and Jerry because I, I deeply appreciate all that they have done in this wonderful book that they've written that is the focus uh, for our time today. I, I don't consider myself a C.S. Lewis expert, and, and the reason for that is because I'm not a C.S. Lewis expert. Instead, as, uh, as Doug said, taught a class at Dubuque Seminary, uh, where Kip Murphy uh, attended and graduated, and uh, somewhere in, his, in the dim memory, <laughs> he, he remembered that I taught a course uh, that utilized uh, uh, Lewis. That I, when I was at Dubuque, I taught pastoral theology, which meant that I had one required class, and then I could just make up electives. And so uh, I had always loved Lewis and Tolkien and, and, and even Charles Williams to a more obscure, lesser extent. You, know, I kinda, you can kind of love Williams without really understanding what's going on there. Uh, so I can attest to that. I just thought, as I would talk to students, uh, I, I began to become concerned uh, for some uh, of them because uh, more and more I was concerned about a couple things. One was, as I would ask them questions, it became apparent to me that many of them never read fiction. These are people, almost to a person, the folks at Dubuque Seminary were preparing for pastoral ministry. So that was a, that was a deep concern because I'm thinking, how? what's informing your own thinking? And furthermore, and, and, and I, I will say this for, for our, 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 our Bible faculty at there, this was not really a problem, but I did have a concern that some of the students, as they became more aware of the historical critical apparatus necessary for really plunging into an understanding of the scripture, that some of them would lose their initial wonder for the scripture, to only see trees and, and to no longer be able to perceive the great forest, the, the opening of the scripture. And so this elective that I taught several times was, was an attempt to uh, answer an issue and a problem. Furthermore, the, the problem, I think, is, was exasperated by, by something that is, is all too real, and Jerry actually referenced this last night, was that in terms of theology, the imagination has really, for the most part, been on hard times. It's been underrepresented. It's, been under, it's not been understood. It's been seen, uh, as we were saying a little bit with Mark, as, as just sort of a fancy. We, we create things through the imagination, but it's something, thank God, you grow out of eventually. Uh, and usually education plays a tremendous purpose 
tremendous job in knocking the imagination out of most people once they enter formal education. I think there's been some studies that show that. But in the Western church, particularly Protestantism in the Western church in many instances has been dominated by questions about the will. How free is the will? Can we make decisions? How can we respond to God? Uh, is it necessary to respond to God? So the will has played this important focus for us. Then, since the Enlightenment, the cognitive reason. We can only believe what is reasonable. We have to discard that which is no longer makes sense. And then a great defense of the reasonableness of miracles, one of Lewis's own things, versus their unreasonableness. And so in the midst of that, I would say, overfocus on the will and discursive reason, the imagination was lost in many ways. And we just did not uh, spend am ample time on that. But it seems to me that, and I, I'll be so bold to say that without the imagination, it would be impossible to really be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is not by accident that the principal means, one of the principal means of teaching that Jesus employs, again, is already referenced today, is he tells stories. Is that the only way for us to really begin to get an inkling, to begin to get a sense of this other way of the kingdom of God is we're going to have to tell, there's going to have to be a story told that will engage our imagination to stop long enough in our reasonableness and to stop long enough in our willfulness to perhaps entertain that there is something beyond our own way of thinking. So what I want to do in a little bit of time here is to, maybe we could call this kind of application. We've, we've, we've had two wonderful lectures, and what I want to do is I'm going to make some more reference to some works by Lewis and actually try to employ a couple of the categories that Jerry and Mark have used in their wonderful book in order to, to show, uh, I would say, an application of what a transformed imagination, or in this case, what a satisfied imagination uh, can look like in the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. That one before us today being Jack Lewis. So here we go. One of, one of the books that I use frequently in teaching the course that I taught uh, utilizing Lewis was Out of the Silent Planet. I had, as I said, I had opportunity to teach that on a number of occasions. And it just seemed to me that there was so many, many things in this book. And one thing that you see particularly in this book is Lewis himself talks and kind of reveals a part of what, uh, again, I heard Jerry mention last night, his apologetic strategy was mere Christianity would be written. Or, or today we talked about the problem of pain and, and, or the evolution of man and, and the hideous, that hideous strength. There'd be an imaginative work written and something actually more engaging the reason uh, written. And it's interesting that one of the things that Lewis says about after Out of the Silent Planet is published, he's writing a letter to Sister Penelope, Penelope of the community of St. Mary the Virgin. And he replies to her on August 9th, 1939, and he says this, You will be grieved and amused to learn that out of about 60 reviews of Out of the Silent Planet, only two showed any knowledge that my idea of the fall of the bent one was anything but a private invention of my own. He wrote that in 1939 in England. And you think, okay, well, how much farther away are we from, from a sense of, uh, of that, that what Lewis is doing here is obviously trying to engage the story of broken humanity, the silent planet, and on our lack of engagement with the rest of the created order. And it's not even recognized in 39. And then Lewis goes on to say this. It shows, I think, his humility. If only there were someone with a richer talent and more leisure, I believe this great ignorance might be a help to the evangelization of England 
any amount of theology can now be smuggled into people's minds under cover of romance without their even knowing it. So again, perhaps there's some, maybe some of you already are doing this, some, some good souls who probably would not, you maybe have more leisure than C.S. Lewis had, but perhaps not more talent, but still willing to take up that challenge that in the writing of these, this type of romantic literature, there still is ways to smuggle theology uh, into the minds of an unsuspecting public. To, uh, to, to get more to the matter at hand here, what I'd really like to do, and again, we've already engaged these categories today, and uh, I'm going to try to, I wouldn't say go a little deeper, but to just make use of these categories, and I hope I'm being truth, truthful to them, and my colleagues can, can speak to that uh, when they have opportunity, when we have opportunity to talk together. But to, to, to use, out of, from out of the silent planet, an example of both the satisfied imagination in Ransom versus the generous imagination in Weston. Now, we've already heard Weston, again, spoken of, of course, as one of the truly evil characters in, in Lewis's literature. This, in Out of the Silent Planet, this is before his complete destruction in Paralandra, uh, the next book in the trilogy. So Weston is awful <laughs> in this book, but he still is human. And that, of course, will finally uh, be undone in, in the next book. Weston is a man possessed by a single idea. He, uh, in, in, his, in, his, in his complete dedication to the idea of the progress of humanity, you see that the very, the, kind of what sets the novel going is that Weston is a firm believer that you have to break a few eggs in order to make an omelet. And so in service of the advancement of humanity, the plan is to kill at least one human being because that will be necessary in order to get what you want from the people of Mars, from uh, Melicandra. So possessed by this one idea, he has, in his generous imagination, he has, in the absence of God, deified humanity. He has decided and believes and is, will push with all of his might that this thing is above all, that he can no longer, like I said, he no longer can see individual human beings of having merit, even though you're pressing for the entire advancement of our race. He can no longer see individual things with merit because of this idea that presses and pushes and goes far beyond what its value ought to be. By the novel's close, it is Weston who is made to be seen as the truly regressive one. He is so far out of place with everything, everyone else and everything else in the novel that, uh, I'll, I'll read the quote here in a moment, that he no longer even become, appears to be human himself. He has stepped outside. He is in his great belief in his generous imagination, which so lifts up the one idea of progress, of human advancement, that he himself seems to be crippled. He himself is, uh, not, uh, is, has become subhuman in his advancement of humanity as, as such. On the other hand, Ransom, of course, in the novel, the kidnapping victim, the person who they do plan to kill in order to appease what they assume the Malachandrans are requiring of them, shows a remarkable freedom. Matter of fact, he is a far freer individual and just becomes only more free as the novel continues, as opposed to his captors, who are shown to really be people who are subservient, people who are imprisoned divine by his greed, but Weston imprisoned by his great idea that eliminates reality, or attempts to eliminate reality itself. And so you see with, actually, let me, let me read a, a passage here from Weston. 
He says, I might reply by asking you why you crept into my backyard like a thief. He's talking to Ransom, you know, blaming him. Well, you, you should never have come into my yard anyway. That's why, you know, you, you were taken. If you had minded your own business, you would not be here. As it is, I admit that we have had to infringe your rights. My only defense is that small claims must give way to great. That's it. Small claims must give way to great. Your little puny ideas of your own personal freedom, that is nothing as compared to what Ransom, what uh, Weston is about. As far as we know, we are doing what has never been done in the history of man, perhaps never in the history of the universe. We have learned how to jump off the speck of matter on which our species began. Infinity, and therefore perhaps eternity, is being put into the hands of the human race. You cannot be so small-minded as to think that the rights of, or the life of an individual or of a million individuals are of the slightest importance in comparison with this. The generous imagination, deifying an idea, and in the, in the process, actually losing the ability to perceive the reality around oneself. Ransom, on the other hand, uh, is, I would say, is a good exemplar of the satisfied imagination. And you see that uh, in some remarkable ways, particularly in that he, on the journey to Mars, has um, a tremendous transformation that occurs for him. Ransom, as time wore on, became aware of another and more spiritual cause for his progressive lightning and exaltation of heart. So on this journey to his doom, Ransom is undergoing this strange feeling that doesn't fit his circumstances. He's feeling freedom. He's feeling lighter, tr truly, and in perceiving more and more light. A nightmare long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of science was falling off of him. He had read of space at the back of his thinking for years, had and at the back of his thinking for years had lurked the dismal fancy of the black, cold vacuity, the utter deadness, which was supposed to separate the worlds. He had not known how much it affected him till now, now that the very name space seemed a blasphemous libel for his, this Empyrean ocean of radiance in which they swam. He could not call it dead. He felt life pouring into him from it every moment. How indeed should it be otherwise? since out of this ocean the worlds and all their life had come. He had thought it barren. He saw, now, he saw now that it was the womb of worlds whose blazing and innumerable offspring looked down, might, down nightly upon, even upon the earth with so many eyes and here with now many more. No, space was the wrong name. Older thinkers had been wiser. That would be the medieval world that, that Jerry just mentioned right before lunch. Older thinkers had been wiser when they named it simply the heavens. The heavens which declared the glory. We'll come back to glory here in a moment. This transition from looking out into the darkness, thinking one is seeing what we call the vacuum of outer space, the bleak, the, the terror of, of, the empty, of the emptiness of space, is changed in Ransom's mind. And in the process of that change in view, that change in perspective, Ransom's appreciation for what is actually going on around him, he feels this deep satisfaction, even going towards his death in his mind at this point, he feels at peace. He feels lifted by actually viewing and appreciation, appreciating the glory of that which he sees around him.
which I think could fit. We'll, we'll hear from the experts a little bit, what we want to call the satisfied imagination. One more quote from about uh, Ransom. Now, with a certainty which never after deserted him, he saw the planets, the earth, he called them in his thoughts, as mere holes or gaps in the living heaven, excluded and rejected wastes of heavy matter and murky air, formed not by addition to, but by subtraction from the surrounding brightness. No longer space, but looking into the heavens. You can actually see a change in perspective there as well. Partly, um, what you can one, one way to determine, see the difference between Weston and Ransom is, is with, the, with the image of a staircase. Weston, of course, sees humanity at the top of the staircase and looks down in disdain at everything that has gone beyond it. On the other hand, Ransom and Weston standing on the same step. Ransom, though, looks upward, and he has the humility of realizing there's so much more beyond him and so much more greater things beyond him that it creates this lightness in him. Weston has disdain for reality. Ransom has this deep and growing appreciation for it. So two examples, and like I said, we can examine maybe more of that with some questions and, and open to correction too with when we get to that part of that. I want to shift over then to, again, the, the famous sermon that we've just heard referenced a number of times uh, today that uh, Lewis preached on 2 Corinthians 4. And um, I turn to this now because I think what you can see in, in the weight of glory is a necessary turning point for, from a generous to a satisfied imagination. What, what does it take to move from that generous, that, that idea fix, that, that unwillingness to accept reality to being satisfied? Uh, I think you see some wonderful themes that emerge from, from the great sermon. It references one of the primary ways that we may gain or begin to gain an awareness of the problem which besets us, and at the same time, the truth that frees us. And that was uh, Lewis's understanding of longing, this, this understanding of longing, of desire that is, is bittersweet, that in the, in the absence you feel some form of presence. The German term sensut is, is referenced from time to time. He references this deep desire uh, in one of the more famous passages from The Weight of Glory. And let me remind you of it, because I'm sure many of you uh, know it very well, perhaps some of you by heart. Lewis says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. Can you just imagine him in that high pulpit uh, delivering this? I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. This deep longing that you want to now pass off as, well, that was when I was a child, and you grow up and you get past these sorts of things. And so Lewis says, you take revenge on this thing that still haunts you by trying to poo-poo it and say, ah, it's something to grow out of, something to progress beyond, uh, I guess, a la Weston. The secret also, which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. 
We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. I think if I take my phone out of my pocket, I can move with more freedom. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave, behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. And this is, I love all of this, but this part in particular. Do you think I am trying to weave a spell? The, the preacher now is referencing his, his art in the midst of it. Do you think I am trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. I hope you love hearing that as much as I, as I always I never I never get tired of hearing this. It's such glorious words. This longing, this reminder that there's something more. As I said, a, a presence mediated by an absence. And the, the, the presence that we feel is kind of the hints of joy. That even when we can't put our finger on it, the fact that there's something there that draws us is a wonder. But if we try to identify it, as Lewis says, with any material thing, we find that that was not it. It was only a marker. It was only a placekeeper. And we still keep looking. So this longing, we, we could say, is, is, a, is a common human experience, if we're paying attention. Now, again, I do think is that we can so silence these voices, we can so, dis, we can so dismiss them for so long that we become unable to hear them. I do think that's probably a, a, a good definition of what it really does mean to be lost. You, you, you know, to really be lost, you have forgotten that you're lost. And, and again, to be, to be found, of course, oftentimes begins with that terrible feeling, I'm lost. The bad news that is opening up into good news. Lewis says that it is necessary to move beyond, however, our desire and our longing, because it alone is not sufficient. Jerry referenced this passage as well, and I'm going to come back to it here in a moment. I think that's where the idea of the baptized imagination comes in. Baptism, regardless of your theology, and regardless even if, it's a, if you have a sacramental theology or not, Baptism is an initiating event. It's, if, it's, if you have a sacramental understanding, it's the initiating work of God in our lives. If you have more of a Baptist understanding, though, still it is something that comes up front in your discipleship. It's not the conclusion of anything. It's only the opening. It's only the beginning. 
So the baptized imagination, which once in one sense could be an ongoing hearing of the longing and appreciation, a story that suddenly opens up something for you, is a beginning point, but by no means can it be the ending point for us in our, in our quest. And so Lewis cites uh, the simple reality that in so many words, beyond the longing, beyond the sense of something's not quite there, Lewis, Christian that he is, says we need revelation. If our religion is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and need to know. We cannot reason ourselves into the kingdom of God. We can become aware of various things. We can have some bad ideas eliminated. But ultimately, we need a face. We need a revelation. We need something that speaks our name, something that we can begin to know and reflect upon and realize, aha, that's where this has been going. That's what this has been pointing to. And in this process, Lewis says, and he's coming to this point in the sermon where he really talks about what does glory really mean? And he says glory means a couple different things. Glory is to show honor to something, is to show approval, or it's luminosity, it's light. These, these, two, these two terms for glory. And he goes on here to say, ultimately then, and then this is, of course, what takes this all to Jesus Christ, the face of glory. He says, perfect humility dispenses with modesty. If God is satisfied with the work, the work may be satisfied with itself. He's talking about if God has decided to grant us honor, then we know honor when we accept the work that God has done for us. It is not for her to bandy compliments with her sovereign. I can imagine someone saying that he dislikes my idea of heaven as a place where we are patted on the back. But proud misunderstandings, but proud misunderstanding is behind that dislike. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory, inexpressible, or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. We, stand, we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. Now, let me, let me go from Lewis to a, a, a far less profound author. That would be myself. And just cite something. I've, for the last several years, I've been working on, on, on a book, and it came out this summer from University Press. But I've been working on this book that attempts to show that in our, in our Western understanding, really for about the last thousand years, that has so identified the atonement with Jesus taking the guilt that is rightfully ours upon himself, which of course he does. The Romans is fairly clear on this. We are guilty. He is not. The innocent one takes what he does not deserve in order that we may go free. Very true. But in our, with our emphasis on that, and I think you could say an overemphasis, we have forgotten or have been unable to see clearly how much Jesus also deals with our shame. Kind of the common psychological distinction between shame and guilt is that with guilt, guilt is about things that you have done or left undone. If you do something bad, you feel guilty, 
or that's, that's actually a good thing. If you, if you no longer feel guilty, that's a bad thing. Lewis talks about that as well. However, you feel shame about yourself. Let me, let me give you a, a mundane uh, example of this. Say it's about uh, 10.30 at night or so. And, uh, you know, it's maybe the day's winding down. If you're like me, it's, it's, it's already wound down. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're feeling a little peckish and you start looking around in the cupboard and you see a, a bag of potato chips. So think, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll have one or two. Well, one or two uh, leads to three or four and five or six. And, you know, as the old uh, advertising campaign went, you only, you, what is it? You, can, you can't eat just one. Right. So before you know it, you look down and you've consumed half a bag of potato chips at 10.30 at night. You go to bed. Judgment day dawns as you step upon the scale. You look and you do not like the results. The guilt response goes something like this. Hmm, probably not a good idea to eat half a bag of potato chips before you go to bed. Tonight, if I feel hungry, I'll eat an apple. You've identified a behavior. You've decided, you've repented of that behavior. You've decided, I don't want to do that again. It's not worth it. And you'll probably do the same thing tonight. But at least you know it was this behavior that you've identified. And you know, too, you can act differently. That's the guilt response. The shame response goes something like this. You look down, same, same number on the scale. The shame response is this. What kind of a pig eats half a bag of potato chips? <laughs> is it any wonder nobody likes me? Shame is this universal rejection of the self. It's not about what you do or don't do anymore. It's who you are. It seems to me in our emphasis upon guilt, we have forgotten that Jesus comes into a shame culture, dies the most shameful death a person can die. Remember Paul's insistence. It's not just that he dies, but how he dies, which is great significance. The the whole purpose of crucifixion is to shame the victim and to help anyone know what Rome does to those who would cross it, what it has the power to do. And so Jesus doesn't just help us a little bit. He truly takes our place. He truly not only accepts the guilt of the world, he accepts the shame of the world and makes possible a new you, a new me. What he does is he takes away our shame in order to give us his glory, the divine substitution, his honor. And that's how we know glory. That's the glory that is shared with us. What I, the reason I'm going through some of this, and it's really, it's not just to tell you I wrote a book, but what surprised me as I was preparing for this time with you today was I've loved the weight of glory all these years, but I had not looked at it again until this time. And I thought, holy cow, there it is again. (laughs) We will one day face his face. And it will either be us giving in completely to our shame or accepting the honor that we have from the dying face, the loving face of the one who has taken all that on our behalf. But we have to face him. I think ultimately, this is where I'm going with all this, and I've got a little bit of time here. But I think ultimately where where I'm going with this is that what makes possible the satisfied imagination is the realization that that which we've been longing for, that which all this has been pointing to, is a face of love. It's, it's the realization that I can appreciate all of these things and I can appreciate my place among these things because the God who has made them all is not against me, but for me. 
I think, in essence, to say that again, then the satisfied imagination can be a result of the atoning work of Christ. I gain a new appreciation for all things once I begin to experience the proper ordering of things, including the proper ordering of myself. You know, again, it's, it's interesting, of course, in the story of the fall, Adam and Eve do something wrong. They break the one commandment given to the one, the one stipulation. You may eat of any tree except this one. Okay? They should feel guilty. They did something wrong, but they don't. What you have is the amazing shame response. They look down and they realize they're naked. They realize they're less than who they thought they were. And that has been our trouble ever worth. So one needs another one to come and experience shame on our behalf in order to alleviate it and ultimately to remove it. And so we get from, we get then the glory that comes to us, the sharing of Christ's glory with us, a face that allows us to experience this, which then opens up to us the possibility of a new life. One last thing, again, on, on just Lewis and, 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 and the shame things here is even when he's describing in the sermon, when he takes that pause and he says, we feel a certain shyness. He's getting to the heart of this. He's getting to the heart of our problem. We're, 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 we're feeling exposed. That's the great fear of shame. And, 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 he's, and Lewis knows he's got his finger right on it here. And that's why it's too hard for us to contemplate it except by beginning to realize, as I said, that God is for us and not against us. Here we have to go to the more traditional understanding of generous rather than a generous imagination, because I want to just now make a little bit of application and say what the satisfied imagination, what the human life, again, application, what the human life may now experience as a result of finding one's place, this appreciation for all things, and a return to one's, one's place within the created order. So having beheld the face, having to come to understand, we may imagine life differently. And we find our proper place vis-a-vis, as the French would say, face-to-face with God, and now may live accordingly, rediscovering a new identity that we are not owners of the universe, a la Weston. We are not the ones come to conquer all things, including the planets that are not out of sync. We are stewards. We are hold a special place in the great created order. In my present capacity as working with a foundation, I do a lot of talks about stewardship and generosity. And again, that's why this is, I'm trying to tie this to Lewis for you today. I was in, oh, about 50 miles uh, to, oh, let's see, around that to the west of Nashville a couple years ago. And I had, was given, it, was a, it was a talk for a number of churches that had come together and, and I was talking about stewardship with them. And I was trying to come up with an, an example of, okay, how do we know, how do we, what a steward really is? Okay, because of course a steward is a servant, but it's a servant who occupies a very, very high place. And uh, I think we, were, we had just been finishing up one, there's just been finishing up one season of Down, Downton Abbey. How many Downton Abbey folks here? Okay, good. It turns out there weren't quite that many uh, in that place in Tennessee where I uh, made that first reference. Because I, I asked that question, I'll come to the point here in a moment. I asked that question, um, how many Downton Abbey fans do we have here? And I saw these three guys in overalls sitting in the back of the room like this. <laughs> so one, at least once being of quick mind, I said, how many fans of Batman? <laughs> He's got a butler too. <laughs> so the idea of the, of, the, of the steward, a servant, 
but occupying a very high place of honor among the servants. The wonderful example of that is the Downton Abbey Connors. What's, is that the butler's name? What's the butler's name in Downton Abbey? Carson. Yes, Carson. Carson has such authority that when he enters the dining room of the servants, what happens? Everyone else must stand up when Carson comes in the room. The butler is the chief steward of the house. And he has all authority whenever the real owner isn't there. But when Carson is communicating with the true owner, it is as a servant. Yes, my lord. He's not the person for whom people stand. Now, he's the person who recognizes who really does own the place, who really does render it all possible for him, including him, to be there. Stewards are servants who occupy a very, very high position. But they, and they know and they maintain that with integrity, only having to remember basically one thing, that they're not owners. As soon as the chief steward begins to act as if he's the owner, then you have mayhem in the house. And we should be somewhat aware of that insofar as that's our story. The stewards who at one time or another in our lives insist on acting as owners. There's a wonderful example of the problem of, of seeing ownership in, of course, the great screw tape, screw tape letters. Uh, at the conclusion of letter 21, screw tape takes up this idea of ownership. And he says this, the sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. Much of the modern resistance to chastity comes from men's belief that they own their bodies. Those vast and perilous estates, pulsating with the energy that made the worlds in which they find themselves without their consent and from which they are ejected at the pleasure of another. It is as if a royal child whom his father has placed for love's sake in titular command of some great province under the real rule of wise counselors should come to fancy he really owns the cities, the forests, and the corn in the same way as he owns the bricks or the nursery floor. We produce this sense of ownership not only by pride, but by confusion. We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, and my country, all the way to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. Even in the nursery, a child can be taught to mean my, as in my teddy bear, not the old imagined recipient of affection to whom it stands in a special relation, for that is what the enemy will teach them to mean if we are not careful, but the bear I can pull to pieces if I like. And at the other end of the scale, we have taught men to say, my God, in a sense, not really very different from my boots, meaning the God on whom I have a claim for my distinguished services and whom I exploit from the pulpit, the God I have done a corner in. And all the time, the joke is that the word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say mine of each thing that exists, and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong, 
certainly not to them, whatever happens. At present, the enemy says mine of everything on the pedantic, legalistic ground that he made it. Isn't <laughs> that great? <laughs> Our Father hopes in the end to say mine of all things on the more realistic and dynamic ground of conquest. A few more quotes about stewardship or mere Christianity. He says, Lewis takes up the subject of money, not, not often, but, but certainly from time to time. Yeah, I got time. I'll, I'll close. I'm going to close with a few examples from Lewis's own life regarding money. But he says, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent upon God. And again, later on in, uh, actually before this in Mere Christianity, he says this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. Um, I get asked this quite frequently. If the, the subject, when the subject of tithing comes up, I get asked quite frequently, now is that on the net or the gross? <laughs> to, to which I always try to say, well, you're immediately asking the, the wrong question. <laughs> Uh, because you've, 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 you've turned an invitation uh, to a, a new life into a, a, uh, uh, you know, an attempt to calculate and, and, and a an attempt to negotiate. You're still kind of missing the point. So here's what Lewis would say to that. Here's how he would answer the question, obviously better than, than I would. Lewis says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. The only safe rule is to give more than we think we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. I am speaking now of charities in the common way. That's a pretty good answer from, from Jack Lewis. Finally, probably one of the more famous things that Lewis says in, in, from mere Christianity in talking about stewardship uh, is, is the one that, that a band named themselves after. You probably remember this story. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not in a sense his own already. So that when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you what that is really like. It is like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does this. And he is pleased with the child's present. It's a wonderful image, isn't it? Let me borrow some money in order to get you something. It is all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on that transaction. When a man has made these two discoveries, God can really get to work. It is after this that real life begins. The man is awake now. With the realization that our greatest things, our greatest gifts uh, are only because the Lord has shared with us, and we are, and God is not sixpence the richer, simply because we have offered something in return to the many blessings that we have. Okay, finally, I want to 
you know, whether you asked for it or not, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's going on in, in, this, in the stewardship literature these days, because again, I think we have some wonderful examples from Lewis's life. Uh, there has been increasingly, uh, uh, with development people and people who talk and, and, and who's tasked with the job of raising money, to move the focus in some degree away from stewardship insofar as stewardship has been overly uh, connected with fundraising. Fundraising in order to continue the work of an organization. Okay. You probably have noticed at some point, all of us, and, and certainly if you're a pastor, you've noticed this, that in many, in many cases, younger people are not really as interested in preserving institutions as, as other generations have been. So the idea that you can continue to, in order to raise money, to tell people to do their duty in order to support a particular organization increasingly tends to fall on deaf ears. People simply don't join and relate to organizations they once did. They once did. It's one explanation for why attendance at church is not what it once was. It's only one. It doesn't explain everything. It'd be, <laughs> it'd be, I'd let us a lot of us pastors feel better. Uh, but, it, but it does explain some things. You know, the, the wonderful work of sociology, bowling alone. People simply don't join bowling leagues like they once did. People don't join service organizations like they once did. People don't join churches like they once did. So the idea that if we can continue to encourage people to give, you have to change the strategy. So the strategy that has increasingly been changed is, is not so much focus on the needs of the organization, is now it's a movement towards helping a person identify their passions and what they really desire to be supporting of. What it is they really, the mission, what they really would love, what makes them come to be the person they really want to be? Or in Christian terms, what helps them come, come to be the person God knows them to be and desires them to become? And that's generosity, the language of generosity. There are some great examples uh, in Lewis's own life. And uh, in this book by Christian Smith, who, who's a sociologist of religion, teaches at Notre Dame. Uh, Christian Smith has really written a, a wonderful book, there are, you know, there's other books than wonderful books uh, that are out there. C.S. Lewis wrote most of them, but there are a few others out there as well. And in The Paradox of Generosity, in giving we receive and grasping we lose, he takes the gospel understanding and, and now gives us some numbers to go along with it that shows how this actually works in people's lives. He identifies four measures for what it means to be a generous person. It is a uh, voluntary financial giving, one's willingness to share one's money. It is uh, volunteering one's, one's work, volunteering in church, volunteering in another organization. Some of you volunteering your time for the, for the C.S. Lewis Festival. I, I, I don't think you're probably handsomely paid for your efforts. That willingness, the board members' willingness to do these things, uh, giving your time because it's, you, it's the right thing to do. And then there's relational expressions of generosity to family. Do you take time for the needs of family? And for neighbors, do you take time for the needs of neighbors, people that you don't know necessarily? Are you open to helping folks as you become aware of it? And then finally, an understanding that this just feels right. This is the person that you have become are becoming. You can't imagine not sharing your time and your finances with others. That's how Smith identifies a truly generous life. Let me, uh, from, from uh, an article by Joel Woodruff, let me just say a few things. This, this just shows some examples from Lewis's own life that what I'm saying is by his appreciation 
for the renewed identity of the steward and the appreciation for the small things and the place that we find ourselves in, he really did li live a generous life, um, according to the sociology literature. One, of course, again, the, in, and we said this uh, when you were talking about the kilns in, in, in the Muzabito, how he opened his home. I guess still we're not quite clear on the nature of the relationship uh, with, with Patty's mother all those years, but he took her in. It bothered Lewis's father, for, probably for on, on a number of fronts, but he did take her and he opened his home for her. My understanding is at one point during the war, there were children that came to stay at, with Lewis uh, who had to leave London because of the Blitz. So Lewis, again, opened up his home. Can you imagine, yeah, can you imagine the two bachelors opening up their home to teenagers? <laughs> That's an act of generosity. Uh, you know, this openness of spirit, this willing to share. Family, Lewis's own relationship with Warney. Obviously not of, you know, not, Warney was of great help to, to, to Jack, but he also was, uh, had a lot of problems, didn't he? But that willingness of, of, of Jack to continue to, to try to help Warney and, and, and to maintain that. So this wonderful gift of hospitality, that sharing with others. Time, you know, you, you showed the typewriter. My understanding is Lewis attempted to answer every letter that he received. And I think it would spend a couple hours each morning on correspondence. I can't imagine doing that. And I'm not famous. <laughs> but that, 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 uh, that generosity of, of one giving one's time and sharing with people who don't know you, many of whom he never would meet, but who had written him probably some fairly strange letters from time to time, too. But that willingness to always respond and share. Finally, um, just his generosity with money. You've, you've probably heard the story that, and I, I, think, it's, I think it's Hooper, whether, whether Hooper was there or not, the story is, I think Lewis references the same story in a letter that he wrote to somebody, was that he, they're, they're walking down the street, he and either Hooper or some other acquaintance, and a beggar comes up and, and asks for money. And so Lewis immediately empties his pockets. And the person walking with him says, you know he's just going to use that to drink, to which Lewis said, well, that's all I was going to do with it, too. <laughs> but a generosity of giving away and sharing financial resources, but far beyond than simply, you know, six pen whatever he happened to have in his pockets that day, was uh, the giving over of royalties. I think by the, uh, the close of his life, but two-thirds of Lewis's royalties uh, were paid into the trust that Owen Barfield helped him set up. Uh, I, I read at one, at one place that he had decided early on that all of the religious writings, all the royalties, he should not receive any of the royalties for religious writing that he did. And so that by the end of his life, he had accumulated about 38,000 pounds, but much, much more of that had been given away. Far more of that had been given away in his own lifetime through the great talent, knowing that the talent was only shared with him. It wasn't his. He was a steward. He was, Lewis was a steward of his imagination. He knew that ultimately this too was in service to Jesus Christ. But let me just, let me just close with this. Let me close with a scripture that I think, again, takes us back to the idea of a satisfied imagination and how that changes our perception, that ability to perceive the small things in their proper place as opposed to other ways of looking. And uh, I just want to reference for you a, a story from the Gospel of Mark that I think uh, is, is, is the way I don't want to end this today. Now the, Mark 8, 14 through 21. Now the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now, that's, now listen to what Mark said there. The disciples had forgotten to bring any bread with them. They had one loaf with them in the boat. 
And so Jesus cautions them. He's just had a run-in with the Pharisees. Jesus cautions them saying, watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. To which the disciples say, and this is the gospel of Mark, so you know the disciples are about to say something stupid. So, because Mark just takes great delight in, in showing how most of the time the disciples cannot imagine what Jesus is talking about. So the disciples say to one another, it's because we have no bread. And becoming aware of it, and I, I like to think Jesus rolling his eyes says to them, why are you talking about having no bread? Even though they have one loaf with them. Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, fearing a trick question, Twelve? Uh, <laughs> and the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. Then he said to them, do you not yet understand? The application. The satisfied imagination can properly perceive reality. It sees things as they are. We're able to see things as we are because we have proper perspective given to us by the face of Jesus Christ. We'd find our real place. The disciples, interestingly enough, they think two things. First, they think Jesus is mad at them. What's up with that? Why is the assumption that the Lord who loves and is always coming for our good is out to get us? It's because we had no bread. I told you to get the bread. And perhaps even more to our point, when we focus upon ourselves, as we've been hearing in different ways today, as we become the center of the universe, what we have actually looks even smaller than reality. We have no bread when right there is one loaf. And as Jesus is reminding them, if I could feed that many with 12 loaves, I think I can make this one loaf last for us. Jack Lewis knew this, and we want to be thankful to God, the triune God, who is able to multiply talents to such an extent that here, 53 years after his death, we're still gathering, talking about the great man's imagination and his service to Jesus Christ. Thank you. Please join me again next Friday at 12 noon Eastern as I sit down and interview Dr. Jerry Root. He is truly one of the finest speakers in the U.S. today and has devoted his life to evangelism and spiritual formation. I'll speak with Jerry about his introduction to Lewis that has resulted in a lifetime of study, lecturing, speaking, and writing on Clive Stables Lewis. This entire podcast has been made possible by the C.S. Lewis Festival and its generous sponsors. To become a part of the Lewis family or even to learn more about the festival and this podcast, please go to our website, cslewisfestival.org. That's cslewisfestival.org. We hope you'll be tuned in next week and see you at the festival next September. Remember, to Narnia in the North. <laughs>